Welcome to Strange Bedfellows Podcast, where no question is too dark, no topic too taboo. Join us to explore sexuality, self-help, and politics with our expert guests and friends. We believe that sexual rights are human rights and that we can all create a brighter world through education and conversation. I am a parent, I am a certified holistic sex educator, I am a longtime sex worker and adult industry entertainer. My name is Elle Stanger and I'm a host of Strange Bedfellows Podcast. My name's John. You might know me as the audio engineer and editor of last season's podcast. I'm now returning as a co-host for season two. I'm a 22-year-old gay man who will share my perspective in the coming season. Join us while we explore and uncover the things that make us squirm, make us shiver, make us tingle in delight. Because sex and politics can make for some very strange bedfellows. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows. John, let's talk about some religion today. Yes. Um, so throughout this show, we have referenced it many times that you and I are, I guess you would say, non-believers um, in terms of like Christian God. Um, yeah. Any of the patriarchal religions and any really right. human-made religion. Yeah. Right. So... You know, I thought it would be helpful to maybe specify some real examples because I find my own frustration, um, you know, and and trying to be tolerant and respectful of other people's beliefs that I know have been like disproven by science. Like, no, you couldn't fit every single animal, one of each sex on a boat. It's just not possible. Um, But, you know, in doing sex ed to the populations, I have to consider like who are who are the people coming to me and why and something that's so commonly I'm seeing and I've only been doing this for you know professionally a year now is a lot of people have shame based on the religions or the faiths that they were raised with so I thought maybe we could discuss some common problems with archaic beliefs that impact modern life Uh, I thought maybe we could consider why people gather in groups of worship and any benefits or harms some of some of these gatherings can perpetuate. Uh, did you know that according to a last year poll, a November 2019 Gallup poll, 87% of Americans when asked, do you believe in God, said yes. 87%. So even though church attendance is down, um, So in 1999, this question was asked if people attended church in America, and 70% of Americans polled said yes. Uh, Two decades later, that number is way, way down. 50% of Americans say that they go to church somewhat. Um, I don't know if that means only on Christmas and Easter or like every other Sunday or whatever day. Um, There are almost no people in my age group that I know who go to church regularly and by almost no i mean like i can't think of a single person but because i'm sure that there's been someone who i've forgotten by now like yeah i i there must have been like friends in like middle school or high school but no one in the mm-hmm. recent years which mm-hmm. is interesting My... because it kind of shows that like it's it's really only adults and older people like who go to to church anymore quite a bit yeah um, my parents don't go to church. My mom's parents were Catholic. My dad's family was uh, Jack Mormon, which meant that they were raised Mormon, but they didn't attend. Uh, my sister and I never were raised to believe in the Bible or to go to church. I went to a lot of churches with my friends. I remember one of my most traumatizing, isolating memories from kindergarten was being pushed into a circle Um, of other kids and I was asked if I believed in God and I said no because my parents didn't so why would I I was like five and (laughs) they all started pointing fingers and shouting at me that I was going to go to hell um, and to say that I believed in God otherwise um, or they weren't going to be my friend it was very scary (laughs) Um, and it didn't make sense to me so we're going to I know so we're going (laughs) to focus on the three main monotheistic religions that impact us the most today. Uh, Judaism is the oldest of the three. 
began about 2,000 years before Common Era, BCE. Some people say or before Christ's existence, but before Common Era, that's about when the uh, Christian's calendar was like regarded as the beginning of the measurement of the years. So there's a debate over whether Jesus was born like four or six, but some people just say one. We'll start at the year one (laughs) and we've gone. And this is why the year is 2020. So that's what we've started counting from was when the Christians started measuring Jesus's existence. So it is a very impactful religion. It's on our money. Um, There's nine major types of Judaism. Did you know that? Like nine major branches. I did not. I thought I knew there were Uh, like a few, but I thought maybe two or three. I did not know there were nine. Yeah. And Christianity is the largest currently. This is the other main one we're going to talk about. It has about two billion followers today out of seven billion on the earth. So um, there's about depending on who you include, like if you include the Amish into Christianity, because they are a branch of it, believe it or not. um, But there's about 25 branches of Christianity most prominent in the world. Yeah. Islam is the newest of the three. It's interesting how like America has their own, or I feel like we have our own brand of religion, no matter what religion you are, right? Like whether you're, whether you're like a a Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Catholic, I feel like everyone is sort of united in this like sense of individualism. I don't know. I feel like people Mm -hmm. don't go to church here as much. And if they do, then like they might do it for occasions and things like that. And, and they might even go occasionally, but like, it's really more about what is your interpretation of your religion? Mm -hmm. Whereas in other countries, it's a lot less (laughs) nuanced and gray. I think, um, I think that people subscribe to different interpretations of religion, but it's a lot more, um, like sectarian than it is here. Um, whereas here, I feel like no matter what religion you go to, you can probably find people who believe like 50 different things, you know, whereas you go to other countries and you'll have different like sects and like different groups that believe different things. But within those groups, it tends to be pretty unanimous. Um, and I think that's sort of interesting. I think evangelism is very popular in America. And it's like you think of those big mega churches Um, because, and I was just reading an article about this, why this appeals to Americans because it's the idea of success through predestination. So if you're successful and some people use this to argue like Trump coming into power, they're like, well, he's a bumbling idiot, but you know, God has made it. So he was ordained to be this person. So therefore we have to respect. So, and it's also a way of like with, um, colonialism and with the westward expansion, what was the phrase, um, God had ordained basically the settlers to I'm so kicking myself. I can't think of this, but we heard this term so many times in like sixth grade history class. It was the idea that it was like they were preordained to repopulate. Um, I think that ties into our, our like ideas, our capitalism and our production. I think that's why it's very um, popular for Americans. Also the Catholics weren't down with divorce. So (laughs) it's just more modern. You know, like the Protestants, a lot of the people that came here were Protestants or non-believers. Um, oh, so and then Islam is the last one. Um, I am not a theologian. I there's so much about religion I don't know, so I'm not going to really try to go like specific into them. But that one, Islam, started around the seventh century, and there's about nine common branches. Um. So, going back. I ask myself this a lot, like, why, why do people create gods? Why is there religion? And we know the sub-Saharan African people um, began worshiping nature and elements of earth. And this was depicted in their art, cave paintings and such recovered around 44,000 years before common era, which is a long fucking time. Um, And people use religion or spirituality to explain unseen forces at work. So like sickness, seasons, food supply, natural disasters. Um, And a lot of people still do this today. Think about like, oh, people are gay and that's why hurricanes keep happening. Like there's still people who believe that like God is angry and that's why, you know, like a volcano erupts and kills a bunch of innocent people or whatever. (laughs) So we asked, so it's not just me and John going on about like, 
why we think these things are wrong, um, I wanted to ask some of my social media followers, all of my social media followers, actually. I said, how did patriarchal religion impact you growing up? Meaning like if you were raised with it. A lot of people said, I have more trauma from church than can fit into this little box. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the churches that we're talking about, remember in the Bible, it says that there's some, there's been some comment, like maybe that's something that's worth mentioning before we read responses. But in the Bible, it specifically said the old Testament that women are in pain. uh, Women suffer pain in childbirth because it relates to Eve who ate the apple in the garden and she committed original sin. So therefore women forever must be cursed with the pain of childbirth because Eve fucked up. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) (laughs) don't you love Um, like goat herder human armchair psychology from like 2000 mm -hmm. years ago Mm -hmm. they're like well some magical woman must have eaten an apple and therefore women whenever giving birth experience pain and everyone's Mm -hmm. like yes we agree we agree Mm -hmm. like fuck come on (laughs) which which like standing alone that's like oh that's a ridiculous belief but how does that hurt people okay so in the 19th century when doctors started experimenting with painkillers for women in childbirth yeah there was an outcry among more conservative people in america at the time that said you shouldn't use this intervention this isn't the way god would have wanted it and today there's still parents that don't take their kids to the hospital or whatever because they're like, no, we can we can pray for this. We can pray this through. We yeah, we, we saw we this the it. other day when in the news there was a lady who uh, didn't bring her her child to the hospital or give him the prescribed Tamiflu, um, and instead she went on Facebook and she asked a Facebook anti-vax group if uh, she could mm. instead give him elderberry syrup and put potatoes in his socks, and the kid mm. died um, mm. like a day later or like a few days later. Um, mm-hmm. which was, you know, not a surprise, sort of, sort of an example, I think of the, the type of problems that come along with religious thinking when it is extended beyond like, like people just lose all sense of like critical thinking and reason, um, when, when they become too enveloped in it and it has to have mm-hmm. a balance with reality that works for everyone, right? Like it has to work mm-hmm. for you personally so that you're happy and that's important too, but it has to work for other people so that you're not impacting anyone who doesn't necessarily believe in that. Um, and, and just because you have ownership of them because you gave birth to them and that's the way the law works doesn't mean that you can suddenly impose your beliefs on a kid, <laughs> even mm-hmm. if, uh, even if you think that's what's right, because Right now, mm-hmm. as far as we know, science cures more than than a lot of uh, praying or, or any sort of like um, homeopathic stuff when it comes to life and death, at least. So mm-hmm. um, we, we can't like not vaccinate and we can't not administer like important medications. Um, you can have a debate about, you know, like the health effects and all that. But when it comes to life and death for kids, there's not really a lot of gray area. When uh, when I've had people say much younger when I was younger, because, again, I grew up in a more conservative um, part of Southern California um, and and, like the unnatural argument is really funny to me because I always argue like, well, maybe God wants us to have abortions and that's why he's given us the science and the technology to do them safely or more safely now. (laughs) You know, like air conditioning isn't natural either, but we have the technology. I thought this was really cool in just looking at some older uh, faiths, religions, uh, spiritualities. The Chiwang from Central Malaysia have a rule. Um, and the this faith began about 3,000 years uh, BCE. But there is a, a rule called, I believe, Maro. And the Maro rule specifies that food, this is a very important like tenet in this religion. Food must always be shared with other people to eat alone is regarded as dangerous or wrong and by looking at the fairness for the entire population will the group have a better chance of survival so this was like in there consider it like a commandment and how nice i think that's really nice can you imagine if we still had that in our society like food must be shared we must provide for people what were you and i talking about right before we started recording healthcare? Uh like yeah can you imagine if we had different ways of looking at things i mean jesus said that too he was like you need to feed the homeless and wash their feet and stuff but 
for some reason, our elected officials aren't following that. Anyway, so so we we asked some of our followers, you know, to hear from other people, um, to learn from yeah. them. How did patriarchal religion impact you as a child? So let's see what we have. As a kid, I grew up thinking everything sex-related was a sin, even kissing. It was awful. Hmm. That sucks. I dealt with vaginismus and didn't know what it was till I was 24 from shame. Vaginismus is a really mysterious condition that seems to be anxiety or trauma related where the vaginal muscles will just clench and it can be very painful and impossible to put a tampon in, have an exam, try to have like penetrative sexual play. Um, that's very interesting. This person says, I was taught that sexuality was an evil not to be explored. Of course, this just incited insatiable curiosity. This person says, I am bisexual. Both are incredibly frowned upon in churches, and I was forced to embrace myself years later, and I'm still letting go of the anger. I grew up thinking I was wrong for being me. Uh, this one says, I grew up Mormon, and at age 30, I'm still working on accepting my queerness and having a healthy relationship with myself. This person says, I was publicly shamed at 14 for kissing a boy. I'm just now getting over it at the age of 33. <laughs> this person says, oh, this box isn't big enough for the torture. <laughs> uh, this one says, uh, completely destroyed any relationship with my family. I live in Alabama. Crying emoji. Huh. Uh, I was supposed to be left-handed, but was forced to be right-handed in school. It, this one says, I googled, why does God hate women in tears when I was little? That's mm -hmm. so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Women's sexuality was for men's pleasure, I learned, and only within marriage with one person. Uh, I was taught that my sexuality wasn't even something I should know much about. I couldn't touch myself without feeling vile afterwards continually ashamed about any decision in life especially when i divorced my abusive ex uh, this one says i'm afraid to come out to my family because my grandpa's a pastor and my family is conservative hmm. i was raised pentecostal in the deep south i used to frantically pray i wasn't bi <laughs> i thought that god watched people when they touched themselves or had sex this one says it made me the proud atheist hoe i am today <laughs> if I wasn't good in church, I got spanked. I cried and prayed the first time I masturbated at 11 because I heard it was a sin. I was Mormon. My grandmother's, my grandmother suffered through years of sexual assault and abuse by male relatives. And no one was talking about it because they were Catholic and bringing it up made me feel resentful of religion at a very young age. When I was six, I used to be afraid because I thought I was going to hell. Internalized homophobia. Always felt like a second-class citizen because I am a, quote, bastard. Does not know her father. My sister and I recently talked about hating ourselves as teenagers for masturbating. I was told that my greatest life's purpose was to be a dutiful, pious wife when I grew up. I had to sign an abstinent pledge at school in sixth grade. Mm. I thought I was going to hell for being attracted to women and having premarital sex. Uh, this other person says, I was told the man was the leader of the house. This gave me low self-esteem, which primed me for abuse from shitty dudes. <laughs> This person says we had a purity ball like prom for church celebrating our oh virginity. God. Can you imagine if you're a child? Wait, can you imagine if you're a child and you've you've experienced like molestation, especially like vaginal like penetration and you're being taught that your virginity is really, really fucking important? How terrible for abuse survivors potentially. Yeah, there's no inclusion <sighs> at all. It's it's. This is why it's like the opposite of intersectional. They're like, what can we do to leave out <laughs> not only the most amount of people, but like the most marginalized groups? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was forced to attend church weekly where old men would comment on my body. Uh... Church always made me deeply uncomfortable. 
I always yeah. felt like very out of place. Um, even when they said stuff that was really mild, I I never mm-hmm. liked the the deviation, f- which just felt so. It just felt like you enter a church and you move so far away from any sort of individual thought, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no like, oh, let's have like a Q and A session. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's not like a I don't know and ask me anything with the pastor and God. It's very much like, mm-hmm. a, okay, we're going to sing this song together now. And like, even at my mom's church where it's like, I don't know, quote unquote, like Unitarian and, and like really progressive or whatever. And it's in the middle of the Bay area. Like, I don't know, man, like they, they sing shit about like being slaves and it's weird and problematic. And like <laughs> they sing songs that are like, God, please make me your slave and like verbatim. Um, Jesus. And I just, I really don't like that. Um, (laughs) it makes me really uncomfortable and I don't have a lot of patience for bringing children into environments like that. And I witnessed children being brought into environments like that because Mm -hmm. I would go to please my mom at Christmas and stuff like that. And they would say stuff like all the kids come up to the front. Um, they would throw out candy and they called it Jesus's springtime offering and like said that it came from Jesus and like when you're a kid and you're being given candy and you're told who the source is of course you're gonna have better feelings towards that person so like like Mm -hmm. food level brainwashing is just weird it's just weird I remember we were in a Mormon it was a thing um we were each given a Jolly Rancher candy we were told to select our favorite which everybody liked the watermelon duh and I remember I like okay, I put this candy in my mouth and we were told to close our eyes and to suck on it and how, and to really enjoy like the taste of it. And we were told that the pleasurable taste that we were experiencing was just like a taste of what heaven would be like. Yeah. See, so this whole like candy fucking brainwashing at churches can <laughs> like, what the fuck you guys? That's why McDonald's got so popular with families when they figured out that they could advertise to parents where they're like, look, we have a play space and we give your kid a free toy. You're a good parent by bringing them here. Um, (laughs) This lady, let's read a few more. Um, Sure. This lady says, my brother was allowed to have girls over, but I couldn't invite boys because purity. Um, I grew up Christian and they have a big deal over virginity, says another. Well, I was also raped by more than one person at two years old. So getting passed over for not being a virgin took a long time to deal with. I'm still dealing with it. Uh, this Hmm. one says, I behaved outrageously scrupulously in fear that I was going to hell. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, this one says, I still hate my parents for forcing me to go to church as a child. The worst memories. This person says, gave me really weird and slightly incestuous ideas about the father role. Hashtag Baptist Christian. Ooh, that makes me think of like the purity balls, the, uh, the father daughter. Oh, where like the dads like drop off the girl because they're kind of like doing a, 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 a fun role play, like practice version of handing off like. A woman do a, a man during a marriage. Well, they like from, escort like, them. It's, yeah. it's no, they don't even drop them off. It's a father daughter ball. Like they hang out the whole time. They take pictures together. Do they dance? Like, yeah. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> what a gross context. Um, yeah. And those have only become really popular in the last like 10, 15 years out of America. It's the goddamn evangelicals again. Uh, someone says they were forced into baptism. The Portland Gay Purity Ball. Oh my god. This person says, I always felt shame for everything. I was taught that sex would be something done to me. Um, this other person says, I'm an atheist, bisexual, liberal, raised by Baptist Republicans. I have BPD amongst other shit. It's the worst. Yeah, I can't imagine having mental health issues in a religious environment. I'll be honest, like Mm -hmm. part of my privilege is like being able to be in an area where religion is really heavily separated from a lot of social life. Um, And Mm -hmm. that has been such a gift when it comes to mental health, because I don't have to deal with people who tell me like I should go pray or that I should like you know not go to a psychiatrist or not see a doctor or not see a therapist Um, because we have to acknowledge and remember that there are a lot of religions not just like the crazy ones like Scientology but like you know um, Mormonism I think generally like they have and a lot of religions have their own therapists right like 
they uh yeah. they just like mm-hmm. will send you to religious therapists who won't give you the same type of advice as a secular therapist will give you because they're going to rely on tools that they expect you to use and if you don't have like if you don't believe in that that sucks for you like you know they're still going to refer you to social groups mm-hmm. that will tend to be heavily religious and it's it's sort of like it's this weird gap in healthcare where religion introduces like the assumption that everyone is like you which is the worst assumption to make in healthcare because everyone's different <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah did you know i own the satanic bible um, i own a, a I lot of bibles i own a lot of different bibles all right well let's take a break and we'll talk about it racks is the first native app designed by and for sex workers with unique features like a social feed club reviews income tracking and event calendars Use it to grow your business at the touch of a button. For more information on racks and more events, in-depth courses, and free content for adult entertainers, visit www.racks2riches.com. R-A-C-K-S-2-Riches.com. And just for Strange Bedfellows listeners, use discount code SBP at checkout for 10% off any educational products. Are you looking for personalized, non-judgmental medical care in Portland metro area? Solace Health, the office of Dr. Eric Shalan, provides full-spectrum primary care services including chronic disease and psychiatric medical management, acute injury and illness treatment, and men and women's sexual health in a unique model operating outside of the usual insurance system. Experience relaxed one-hour appointments with same-day availability, as well as direct physician access via text, email, or phone for a flat monthly fee of $67 to $100, regardless of insurance coverage. Visit solacehealthpdx.com, that's S-O-L-A-C-E, healthpdx.com, for more information or call to schedule a free, no-obligation consultation to see if Solace Health is the right fit for your needs. 503-231-3371, solacehealthpdx.com. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows. We're talking about religion and different books that we've read or own. And Elle has the Satanic Bible to start with. <laughs> uh, so Anton LaVey started this church in, I believe, the 60s in San Francisco. Um, I think it's kind of funny that you can just begin a religion and there's the assumption that it's real. <laughs> cough, cough, Mormonism. Yeah. Want to start a religion all? It could be yeah. like a Portland-based religion. It could be a really cool one. We could get like tax-exempt status. I was going to say, sounds like a tax write-off. Let's do it. Let's start <laughs> the Church of Sacred Horrors. Invest um, in some real estate. Do some Scientology, mm-hmm. except like not Scientology and just the money-making part. Like mm. <laughs> mm. group orgies. Uh, I had a threesome last night, which Ooh. we don't have time to talk about here, but we can talk about a little bit in the after show. Yeah, it was B's first. And it's really funny because I was prepping for this episode the next morning. Um, I actually set a timer uh, for it to kind of disrupt the the sex at some point because I knew that I needed to go to bed by a certain time. But so I'm prepping for this episode and I just thought like, <laughs> like the Bible says that's not okay what we just did. But it was so good and it <laughs> felt so healing. So what's in the satanic Bible? Because I've had friends who have owned it in middle school. I've had friends who owned it in high school. I've heard that it's written by a dude named Anton LaVey who's like a Satanist. And I sort of have an idea of what Satan- Satanism is, which is basically atheism with like a moral code and like more of a worship of oneself than it's not really like a true religion it's more like a structure like a framework um Mm -hmm. and a lens of understanding um Mm -hmm. rather than something to really believe in Mm -hmm. yeah um i will admit i have not read this entire book i probably never will um but let's look at the nine satanic statements let's do a little book roulette Here is the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. He is no longer living. He is dead in the ground. (laughs) One, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Two, Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. 
Three, Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Four, Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. Five, Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. <laughs> Satan, this is six, Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. Seven, Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those that walk on all fours, because <clears throat> who, because of his, quote, divine, spiritual, and intellectual development, has become the most vicious animal of all. I like that. Yeah. Satan represents, eight, Satan represents all of the so-called sins as they all lead to mental, physical, or emotional gratification. Nine, Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had, and he has kept it in business all these years. Yeah, there's actually a, um, what's his name? The guy who wrote a, Tom Sawyer. Mark Twain. Mark Twain, thank you. Mark Twain uh, has a quote where he says that he finds it like fascinating or something that in all this time, he's never heard of a Christian praying for the devil. Mm. Um, who might be the sinner who needs it most. And I thought mm. that was just sort of really interesting, you know? Um, mm. Yeah. Mark Twain's interesting. A lot of the uh, satanic Bible is like taking care of yourself first, which yeah. is pretty opposite, um, like a higher power. Let's see. Also, so these are fun. This is a fun one. What if... You try to follow the Bible as literally as possible. This book is called The Year of Living Biblically. One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible by A.J. Jacobs. I think I Times saw like a bestseller. challenge once like on a, on a meme page, an atheist meme page that was like open the Bible and put a finger down on the page and do whatever it says. And mm -hmm. like it'll take you less than an hour to go to jail. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the back of this book describes more raised in a secular family, but interested in the relevance of faith in our modern world. AJ Jacobs decides to dive in head first and attempt to obey the Bible as literally as possible for one full year. He vows to follow the 10 commandments to be fruitful and multiply to love his neighbor, but also to obey the hundreds of less publicized rules, such as to avoid wearing clothes of mixed fibers, to play a 10 string harp to stone adulterers. Oh my so, God. Yeah, and the cover art, <laughs> he's got this big old beard. It's like a before and after big old fucking beard. So let's see, I'll just pick a page. Day 23. As I mentioned, one of my motivations for this experiment is my recent entrance into fatherhood. I'm constantly worried about my son's ethical education. I don't want him to swim in this muddy soup of moral relativism. I don't trust it. I have such a worldview and though I have yet to commit a major felony it seems dangerous especially nowadays uh, the quote from the Bible is he who spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him from Proverbs 13 24 so that's where it says definitely if you beat your children you love them <laughs> yeah. um, so he says so I want to install some rock-solid absolute morals in my son. Would it be so bad if he lived by the Ten Commandments? Not at all, but how do I get him there? At 2 a.m., he woke up, so I let him climb into bed with me and Julie, which is already a sucker move. Instead of lulling him to sleep, this gave him lots of new activities. He started grabbing my sleep mask, pulling it away from my eyes until the elastic band is fully extended, and then releasing it. The mask would shoot back into my face with alarming force, producing an eye-watering snap. Contrary to what you might think, my sleep mask does not violate the Bible's prohibition against wearing women's clothes. It came in a box featuring a photo of a very masculine and well-rested man sleeping next to his attractive wife. <laughs> I, told just, I told my son to stop, but my tone was about as menacing as Fred Rogers. Uh, so he did it again and again, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This is probably unbiblical. The Proverbs are the Bible's collection of wisdom attributed to King Solomon and they come down clearly on the side of disciplining kids as in corporal punishment Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says 
quote, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs twenty three fourteen: thou shalt beat him with the rod and thou shalt deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 23, 13. And we wonder why like people have problems. Yeah. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. And then he says, some Americans hew to these proverbs literally. Until 2005, you could buy, quote, the rod, a 22-inch nylon whipping stick that sold for $5. It was the creation of an Oklahoma-based Southern Baptist named Clyde Bullock, who advertised it with the motto, quote, spoons are for cooking, belts are for holding up pants, hands are for loving, and rods are for chastening. He shut down the business partly because of an outcry from more liberal Christians. Uh, So in terms of what he does to his son uh, I guess you have to read that and find out that's an interesting book I accidentally took it from my ex-husband number two's house when I got a divorce <laughs> I should probably give it back to him all right book number two coming off of that you know if you think it's tough trying to be someone following the old testament quite literally try doing it as a female person uh, a year of biblical womanhood is by Rachel Held Evans, how a liberated woman found herself sitting on her roof, covering her head and calling her husband master. So this lady, she even in her uh, in her forward, she's like, yes, J.J. Abrams already did this, but I'm doing it from a woman's perspective. The description of this one is, Evan learns the hard way that her quest for biblical womanhood requires more than a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter 3, 4. It means growing out her hair, making her own clothes, covering her head, obeying her husband, rising before dawn, abstaining from gossip, remaining silent in church, and even camping out in the front yard during her period. Um, so for this one, I believe she tried to pull from several of the most dominant religions and spend a little bit of time following the rules for each one. So... Um, it's kind of all over the place, um, but I appreciate that more. One of the things I liked about this book, and I didn't finish it, but she admits that it wasn't all bad. And she said one of the things that she gained from doing this was being a better listener and her empathy developed. Um, and I thought that was really cool because some of the guidelines set in place by religion like don't sound like a terrible idea. Like, don't gossip. Okay, that sounds fair. Like I've said it before that one of the major issues with like modern feminism is a lot of infighting and like callouts and toxicity between mutual women. And if we didn't engage those ways, we'd all be the better for it. So, I don't want people to think I'm coming down like all religion is bad. I just think many, many aspects of our main ones are. Last one. This one I read a little bit um from on a, in an after show on our Patreon. This one is written by a woman, a Christian woman, about 10, 15 years ago. It's called An Affair of the Mind, One Woman's Courageous Battle to Salvage Her Family from the Devastation of Pornography by Lori Hall. A word of caution. The author of this book attempts to honestly confront the evil realities of the impact of pornography upon families. In this process, it has been necessary to include certain material that may be offensive to some readers due to its direct and graphic nature. All right. So, let's see. I'm going to just turn into... Okay, so here's page 82. She says, Porn encourages sexual practices that destroy the dignity and worth of participants. The U.S. Surgeon General's report included that, quote, pornography increases the acceptance of the use of coercion in sexual relationships. Bondage is a form of sexual coercion heavily promoted in pornography. Whether it's the hardcore portrayal of women restrained in deplorable conditions or the sadomasochistic portrayal of a dominatrix raining pain and humiliation down on a powerless male or the softcore portrayals of cute ways to tie up women in charming bedroom scenes, the message is clear. In the real world, we tie up or otherwise restrain animals, not valued human beings with whom we want a consensual relationship. Far from creating the wildly erotic highs pornography portrays, bondage packs a one-two psychological and physiological punch that makes it a real sexual turnoff. (sighs) 
okay, okay, last sentence. This is great. According to Helen Singer Kaplan, sexual arousal is controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system, PNS. The PNS functions apart from our will, building up the body. It is active when we are relaxed and open to a situation. We can't force ourselves to become aroused. Arousal is a byproduct of feeling trusting about what is happening to us. So I think it's really interesting that she assumes that it's not consensual in uh, BDSM situations, but I wonder if she would advocate for hitting her kids. You know? Interesting. Like someone who's like, no. I didn't think about it. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. you would, they would, the, the, the perspective there is likely that, oh, I own the kid, therefore it's my property, therefore an extension of me, therefore I'm not actually violating anyone's rights. Well, it depends how conservative you are too, because it's like the wife is supposed to answer to the husband. <laughs> yeah. So that's like a really interesting framing thing where she's just like, no, it's harmful because of the actions that are that are occurring there's hitting or there's tying but not even to go back a little bit and be like well wait is this what everyone's into because then your concern is null and void uh and she's right people are more receptive to arousal when they feel comfortable which like what we did last night b and i and our friend we had agreements via text and then sat down and drank some tea and talked about what we were into and we compared and contrasted the toys and the lube and the barriers like that we brought. And that was a really nice way to make sure we were all comfortable and there was no, no. you know, abuse. That's cute. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my God. It was so hot. Uh, I've wanted to see my boyfriend fuck someone else for so long and it finally happened. It was heavenly. <laughs> just heavenly i had a really interesting um sensation too i was on the floor and we were all completely naked and i was just kind of like sat with like everything splayed but like up sitting up because i was watching them and they were kissing and he was inside of her and everyone was moaning and breathing and i just i felt i just thought to myself like this is what it means to be a human <laughs> i had this thought That's in my mind really cool. i like that it was re- i loved it i was like oh my god this is the most human thing i can do right now like people have been fucking around each it was other a little spiritual i like it it felt so spiritual it just felt like being in a cave my den is a cave it's like a carpeted cave with a stripper pole and a fireplace i feel that (laughs) i totally feel that i'm currently i'm not even kidding i'm currently laying down on the carpet in like my living room which is like since it's a bigger living room than the last place and we have less like rooms and stuff it's sort of like my place to relax um Mm -hmm. and i'm just like (laughs) on the other end of it on the carpet next to like this like mini electric fireplace like i i (laughs) I can relate to the den feeling like (laughs) Mm -hmm. so cozy All right, so let's do some listener questions. In your last or one of your recent episodes, Elle was explaining that her and B hadn't had sex in about two weeks after her trip to Vegas. John seemed super surprised and exclaimed something like, whoa, that's a long time. Obviously not quoting verbatim. And Elle agreed it was a long time. Anyway, obviously, frequency depends on your individual relationships, but do you really think two weeks is a long time? My partner and I could easily go three to four weeks without physical intimacy. We live together, he works shifts, and I work nine to five, both with weekends off. What's your take? We've discussed that we would like to have sex more often, but it seems difficult for us. Just looking for some thought. Ooh, I like this question. Me too. I actually, it's funny when you said, ooh, that's a long time. It like pinged me because I'm like, ah, that depends who you ask but I am yeah so I'm glad for this question from what I'm reading from this description this person is saying my partner and I could easily go three weeks three to four weeks without physical intimacy um however it says they have weekends off and they want to have sex more often but it seems difficult um part of that so this sounds like a case to me at least like fatigue like schedule fatigue Mm. And the fact that it's not always easy is like, for me, it's a lot harder when school is up and going to have sex often. Mm-hmm. Like the, the time I had sex the least was probably when me and my boyfriend had finals around the same time. And we didn't have sex for like two and a half weeks. Um, mm. And that was the, the longest period. But it has to do really with like 
how often we want to have sex. So I would say, yes, it was a long time for how often I'd like to have sex, but that depends on your definition, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to have sex once a week, then that's, that's perfect. Like it's just, you have to figure out what works for you. Um, Mm -hmm. In this case, what could you do differently is probably like the only thing I've found that really helps me have sex more often is even when I don't want to, if I just feel like cuddly or if I want to like have some affection, I'll like go and like cuddle with my boyfriend on the bed for five, 10 minutes. And if it Mm -hmm. becomes something, then that's great, but it doesn't have to. And, um, but it also has the option too, which is nice. Um, Mm -hmm. and what I'm hearing here is like, you guys are busy, but you have some time off together. So what I would say is like, go to the environment that you like having sex in when you feel like you might want to have sex or if you just want to have sex more often and you're not feeling like it but you want to use the uh what was it we used last time all that skill but use responsive desire um that'll help because that's like sometimes you don't want to have sex in the moment but you look at like back at your day and you're like oh wow like if i'd had time for sex i would have liked to have sex today but the problem is like you can't always get there in the moment so just get yourself there in the moment um or create windows of opportunity for it um, mm-hmm. so that you at least have a chance to, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, I... it also depends like on your body and stuff. Sometimes you'll get more tired and or if mm-hmm. like, yeah. Um, if people, I mean, I know asexual couples or like one of them's asexual and they never have sex, you know, and like maybe the other one's non monogamous dating or something, but, um, and then there's other people that are comfortable to be romantic and cohabitate together, but they aren't sexual and that's totally great and fine. But if you are both wanting more sex, um, the burnout, like the monotony of life is real. And there's actually something really interesting. So I've finally been reading mating in captivity, Esther Perel, and she's a sex therapist who does a lot of, um, she speaks like eight different languages. So she's done a lot of cross like cultural work, And she's also been a therapist for 20 years. Um, She saw straight and gay couples as of this writing. And she, a lot of what she says that she sees between couples who don't have sex, even though they say we love each other, we trust each other, we care about each other, is that there's no mystery because everything is so shared. So... Let me just read this part real quick. Um, She says that often the trick to creating desire is mystery and like a oneness, like having your own shit and not knowing everything about your partner. Um, She says when the impulse to share becomes obligatory, when personal boundaries are no longer respected, just meaning like just say that you guys go in and out. Do you guys go in and out of the bathroom when each other go into the bathroom, for example? Like, do you have any private time? When only the shared space of togetherness is acknowledged and private space is denied, fusion replaces intimacy and possession co-ops love. It is also the kiss of death for sex. Deprived of enigma, intimacy becomes cruel when it excludes any possibility of discovery. Where there is nothing left to hide, there is nothing left to seek. So I want couples who text all day, live together, have all the same friends, a lot of the same interests. Um, I want them to consider what that does to desire because part of the reason we experience desire when we first meet someone is because our, our mind runs wild with all the possibilities, you know, and the excitement of the unknown combined with what is appealing to you about that person, you know, the way they look or smell or talk or carry themselves, whatever. Um, And it's just like the mundane, like, clothes on the floor or food mess like left out in the kitchen you know I need to have space from B to feel more excited about him like I need to wonder like ooh, did anybody like give him a back rub at work today like you know that stuff gets gets my my heart kind of a little more interested (laughs) um so yeah so for couples who feel like they've lost any kind of spark I would say start doing some like separate interests maybe don't tell each other everything about your day um maybe like if you sometimes I'll like I'll buy a shirt this here's an example like I don't shop for clothes that often anymore but like I bought a shirt and I didn't mention it to be like oh I went shopping today look at all the stuff I bought or whatever I just put it on one day and he was like ooh never seen that shirt before and I was like good that's your favorite color I knew you'd notice you know like right so like save little surprises you know leave little notes um 
But yeah, B and I probably, we only really see each other once a week. So we would, we usually have sex like then if I'm not on my period, we'll, we'll do some kind of touching. Um, I want to read, I'm going to paraphrase this. I would like to read this feedback response from someone about sobriety and um, atheism. I wanted to comment on the article you read about LGBT finding sober support. I identify as a demisexual straight and I'm an active member of 12 steps, but on the friends and family side of Al-Anon, I have been active in my own alcohol recovery uh, and was affected by my parents' alcoholism for 14 years now. It's unfortunate the experience John shared on the episode where it was a bunch of old guys talking about Christianity in Alcoholics Anonymous the 12-step approach does not endorse or affiliate with any religion. I myself don't go to church anymore, and it's too fake for me. I'm happy to share my experience and provide insights with what have helped me. People in 12 steps shouldn't be prescribing what their God is. The professional community calls it codependency, where we may not be drinking or drugging, but will contribute by enabling behaviors, putting our needs before other people's needs, unsolicited advice giving bullying or becoming a workaholic uh so these are other ways you can become codependent apparently if you're trying to get out of uh, alcoholism they say i've heard others share that you should ignore the actual words if you're trying to get sober ignore the actual words about religion or spirituality and just grab onto something that works for you I've been active yeah, in recovery. I see, see, that's the, that's mm-hmm. a problem for me, though. Because, like, yeah. I... So, this person seemed to be very specifically talking about something called the 12-step program. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're referring... So, did you say they were referring to the to Alcoholics Anonymous? Or... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, because I, from what I have heard in my experience from atheism activism um, was that a lot of alcoholics had a difficult time quitting because they were atheists and couldn't find support they needed at Alcoholics Anonymous because they said it was very often heavily religion um, centered language um, Mm -hmm. and people as well and the one time I did go to a thing that wasn't even Alcoholics Anonymous but it was um, a similar organization called Narcotics Anonymous and it wasn't for me but it was for a friend who had to go and I wanted to go with her so she wouldn't be alone and um, Mm -hmm. the guys were all religious and the paper also like talked about God and it was in a very substitute in your own God or own beliefs kind of way and they had a Mm -hmm. little bit of a redundancy like to make sure that you know if you didn't believe in God there was some other stuff you could like read off of but it's more Mm -hmm. than just about what's on the paper it's about the social environments that are created and sort of like the the moral lens at which you look at alcoholism through alcoholism and drug addiction are never moral failings they are products Mm -hmm. of environments combined with Mm -hmm. chemical addictions and reactions um, there is nothing good or bad about a drug addict. There's nothing good or bad about a drug addiction. There are only expressed behaviors and consequences that result. Um, mm-hmm. like the, the idea that there's any sort of like, I, I even struggle a lot with recovery programs that try to create narrow framework for how to get out of, I don't know that there are 12 steps to recovery to me the human brain is this thing that you sort of have to just hit with habits and like repetitiveness um, until Mm. it learns how to get out of something. Like for me, not drinking, the only way I could get to not drinking was by not drinking. Um, Like that's, I I don't understand how to explain that, but it's just practicing it over and over every single day until it becomes normalcy. Um, And I feel like sobriety is very much that as well. And I I always have Mm -hmm. a difficult time with these programs that, sometimes it feels like armchair psychology um, that relies on some good ideas and frameworks and then also introduces all this other unnecessary stuff that sort of clouds the whole like you know road to sobriety and makes it less inclusive um but i do think that maybe you know these programs are modernizing in some spaces that are more progressive and maybe not in others and it it might be important to be aware of that too Mm -hmm. yeah this person says um these books that were helpful for a young person affected by problem drinking and I don't know if any of these are good but recommended by our listener from survival to recovery is one intimacy in alcoholic relationships is another hope for today and having had a spiritual awakening ebook only 
This person says, in any case, the important thing that helped me was the slogan, take what you like and leave the rest. So in terms of admitting that there's a higher power, no, like regardless of what that is, even if the higher power is like your addiction, maybe, but like acknowledging that there's an addiction. <laughs> uh, all right, let's take a break. Hey friends, are you sick of razor burn? Have your nethers cleaned up by the pros at Netherlands Wax in Vancouver, Washington, where experienced owner estheticians have performed literally thousands of Brazilian waxes. Netherlands Wax is gender neutral, sex positive, trans and queer welcoming, kink positive, and body positive. We are just over the 205 bridge in Vancouver, Washington. Worth the drive. Find us on Facebook, Yelp, or netherlandswax.com. Are you a man looking for insight into the male brain? Looking for a safe space to hear discussions about the problems men face every day? Are you struggling in daily life, but finding it hard to pinpoint the cause? Maybe your relationship is suffering. Maybe your job is sucking the life out of you. Or maybe you love sex, but aren't having any. Maybe you're just finding it hard to feel genuine connections. Well, head on over to the Brome Podcast, where hosts Ben and Joe discuss many of the issues we face in daily life, but have little guidance in. You'll learn from the bros, and from guests like Elle, on how to talk to women, or any fellow human being. How to be more understanding and compassionate towards others, how to listen to your partners in the sock, and much more. Brome Podcast. B-R-O-A-U-M. Again, that's B-R-O-A-U-M. Are you looking for a sex worker-friendly therapist who specializes in gender and sexuality in the Portland, Oregon, or Vancouver, Washington area? Sue Uvery is licensed in both states. Visit www.genderandsextherapy.com to learn more about Sue's offerings and her experience working with adults, youth, queer, and trans folks. Sue also accepts sliding scale rates for cash-only clients. Visit genderandsextherapy.com to meet Sue and to create a path to self-care and wellness. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows. We're talking about news and religion and news. And there's been some mm -hmm. weird stuff in the news. And one thing I noticed was Mark Zuckerberg talking about how he's become more religious recently, which I thought was really convenient because the people who are currently influencing the will of the most powerful person in America have their eye on Facebook because of a lot of claims that have been made around whether or not Facebook is impartial when it comes to conservative news. So for Mark Zuckerberg to say he's becoming more religious signals two things. One, that he's aware of Trump's base and that he's willing to cater to them and Trump by default. <laughs> and the other thing is that he did this weird 50 state tour a few years ago, um, like one or two years ago. And it gave game? this like very maybe I'll run for president someday kind of billionaire vibe um, that a lot of people were concerned about. Um, and I, I just think that's interesting and something that we should keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he says the last few years have been really humbling for me. Uh, recently interviewed at a Silicon Slopes tech summit. Uh, I've become more religious. He attributed his religious evolution to the issues his company has faced over the last few years interesting and the birth of his two daughters now ages four and two we all need to feel like we're parts of things that are bigger than ourselves i try to put my girls to bed every night i don't always get to do that but that's what's important to me work is important but at the end of the day we're all people and you need your family and friends and communities around you you have to believe in things that are bigger than yourself haha <laughs> there's that higher power yeah uh, he was raised For example, Jewish. Mark Zuckerberg believed in hot or not when he was at Harvard and wanted to rate women based on a numerical scale. <laughs> and that was larger than himself because he got other people involved too. <laughs> he says, I questioned things for a period, but now I believe religion is very important. Fascinating. Which comes at a very goes. convenient time considering that the majority mm -hmm. of America is now hoping that Mark Zuckerberg, who is traditionally poll tested as not being seen as having morals because of the way that he manages humans' data. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just glad that this is a, a time that he was born again. And I think we should mm -hmm. all welcome um, Mark like Zucker Christ back into the fold of uh, people who <laughs> consider to be uh, really moral and upstanding individuals as a society who Zucker are not Christ. at all to blame for our destroyed democracy and the spread of... Like what would Zuck do? Divisive rhetoric. Delete those nipples. Um, <laughs> what would Zuck do? Um, 
ruin America. <laughs> oh my gosh. So here's Get an opinion piece. This one, I actually have not heard this approach to this argument before, but it makes sense to me. Commentary from LGBTQNation.com by Wayne Beeson. You cannot be pro-life and anti-LGBTQ. What? Homophobia and transphobia kill, so the people who want to protect fetuses should stop trying to pass legislation that increases LGBTQ suicide. So it starts out by saying that right-wing evangelicals and conservative Christians like to say they are pro-life. They thank Trump for it all the, all the time for making America pro-family, pro-life. Yeah. Uh, Trump and his supporters are outspokenly anti-gay. You can't claim to be pro-life unless you're also pro-LGBTQ. Let me repeat that. He says, you cannot claim to be pro-life if you're also anti-LGBTQ because suicide is the second leading cause of death for all U.S. teens. But LGBTQ teens are five times more likely to try to kill themselves than their straight peers. Furthermore, Dr. Caitlin Ryan published a study in the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics that showed, quote, LGBT teens who were highly rejected by their families were eight times more likely to have attempted suicide, six times as vulnerable to severe depression, and three times more likely to use drugs. So that's really interesting. It's like respect all life in the womb. What if it's a gay baby? A gaby. <laughs> uh, what do you think about that? I don't know. Argument. I, uh, <sighs> sure. I mean, <laughs> it's sure. It's, why not? Again, it's, it's through the religious lens, so I can't really relate to it, but I mean, you know, if it appeals to you people hate who it? otherwise like would it? be anti LGBTQ, sure. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I can laud like morality based on like a caveat, like of like, you know, you can't you can't hate gay people because they might kill themselves. <laughs> I'm like, right. oh, okay. Like right. true, I guess, but like <laughs> oof, does it have to go that far for you guys to care? Like <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's still mental gymnastics. I'm just wondering yeah. if uh if it reaches anyone. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting. I hope it does. Uh, I mean, you know, if it's thought. a net positive, then of course it's good because I can moralize all day, but numbers matter more. Um but at the same mm-hmm. time, I just I, I do want to express some concern around having to do those, like you said, mental gymnastics to get to what would hopefully be common sense. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah. Let's do another one. Just another example of Mauritania. I'm not even familiar with this country. Police arrest 10 men for, quote, attending a gay wedding, which actually turned out to be a birthday party. The country has strict <laughs> Islamic law known as Sharia law, which bans homosexuality. Amazing. The men could face the death penalty if convicted for the crimes at trial. So a video was posted on social media of um, people at a gathering and some of them were gay men, apparently. Uh, I guess executions are not common, but they're still legal. So it says that executions for this have not been carried out in this country in more than a decade, according to Amnesty International, which is only a decade. So. No. Yeah. Uh, Same sex acts are illegal in more than 33 African countries, and that can lead to death sentences in at least four. Um, Something worth noting that these countries didn't have these beliefs um, or these religions until they were invaded and colonized. So these aren't the indigenous beliefs, which is really interesting. And as a white atheist, um, sometimes I reflect on how curious it is that a lot of people of color are worshiping the religions of their colonizers, which is like ouchie boo boo, not something that a lot of people I think want to talk about, but um, you know, that's that's historical, and I think that's relevant. It's something to consider sometimes. All right, okay, and then last one. Last one. You found this in the news. Yes. Federal judge accepts religious liberty defense of immigration immigrant rights activist. Yes, What's and this? I believe that, um, from what I remember, because it was a few days ago I sent you it, but basically they were leaving water out, um, and what was happening was they were they were prosecuted for, I think, like, 
Oh, in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so an Arizona federal judge reversed the convictions of four faith-based volunteers who were fined and put on probation for aiding migrants at the border. And the activists said that they were exercising their, quote, sincerely held religious beliefs, which includes giving people food and water so they don't die. Yeah. And uh, apparently it worked. <laughs> so wow, the ruling in United States cool. versus Hoffman, which was announced on Monday, February 3rd, upended a lower court decision that found the activists guilty of breaking federal law by leaving out water and food for migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona's Cabeza Prieta um, National Wildlife Refuge. And then it says activists in the case argued they were working with the group No More Death slash No Mas Muertes, an official ministry mm-hmm. of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Tucson, and thus were acting on their religious beliefs to save immigrant lives. They contended that prosecuting them violates the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which bars the government from placing a substantial burden on the free exercise of religion. So it says here that the U.S. District Judge ruled that not only are the activist beliefs sincerely held, so much so that the depth, importance, and centrality of these beliefs cause defendants to restructure their lives to engage in this volunteer work, but also that prosecuting them amounts to a substantial burden on their faith. So it's kind of cool. I just, I love it when religion works against the racists who traditionally, like, would be the ones to to exercise it against people. Um, Uh So this is really nice to see religion actually stand for something that it has traditionally always said it stood for, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is wonderful. Exactly. See, and that's why, like we said in the beginning, like there's reasons why people started worshiping things like community togetherness. I remember when I read that that uh, study that people who go to church report um, higher like life happiness and satisfaction. Yeah. And I was and so do. irritated. Yeah, I know. I was like, why? That doesn't even make sense. But it's it's just like shared beliefs and being around like minded people and being able to ask people for things and. Yeah. And atheists could have that too, but because religion exists, it's very difficult to find that. So it's not because religion is so wonderful, it's because it's the social default with many gathering spaces and a high rate of social acceptance for people in their in-group. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, in our previous episode, you know, it's like Sienna Newcastle said, she said, find out what you believe in and go die on that hill. So if you believe in planting trees or recycling or helping children read, like you can find those organizations and you can spend a lot of time that way. You know, and for me with sex positivity and like my sexuality relating to my sense of community and how I engage with people like that's how I'm choosing to go about it. And it feels really nice. (laughs) So cool. We just encourage our listeners to believe in whatever they think is going to help them with their life path, you know, and uh, least least amount of harm to others, ideally. So, okay. Thanks, everybody. So listen to our after show and I'm going to talk about the sex that I had and how I got down on my knees and worshipped a goddess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Thanks, everybody, to our listeners. Thank you, John. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Strange Bedfellows Podcast. To find behind-the-scenes photos, bonus clips, and journals from your guests and hosts, type www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash strange bedfellows and join for only $1. Find us online at strangebedfellowspdx.com and Instagram at strangebedfellowspdx. You can find me, L. Stanger, on stripperwriter.com and Instagram as L. Stanger. Write your hate mail or sex and relationship questions to pillow talk at strangebedfellowspdx.com and find me, John, on Instagram at metric.cafe. Please rate and review our show on your favorite listening app. Thanks for supporting sex education and freedom of expression.